0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today.
1: This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move, or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat.
2: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people
1: guaranteed.
0: This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from Scottsdale, Arizona, from the Phoenician Resort. Here we are essentially at the base of Camelback Mountain in Scottsdale. I've been coming here, God, for 47 years. That's crazy, but it's true. I've seen a lot of the changes, but my next guest knows everything about it because he happens to be the mayor of Scottsdale, Arizona, Jim Lane, Mr. Mayor, welcome.
5: Well, thank you very much, Peter. It's nice to be here with you, certainly. It's always nice to be here in Scottsdale. Now, I said I've been coming here for 47 years. You've lived here for 46 years. That's right. So we're about the same. That's close. But you've really seen all the changes. Well, yeah, I've been living here the entire time and and, I've been industrious in in the entire period of time. Not always in this office.
0: And, of course, before 46 years ago,
5: you were from Jersey. Well, actually, I came from school in Philadelphia. But you're from Jersey. <laughs> I am from Jersey, absolutely. Continue to consider myself a Jersey boy. Still? Yes. <laughs> where in now, Jersey? I, you know, I'm Arizona. I probably should probably refrain <laughs> no, from saying that. it's too late now. You said, no, yeah, you that's said right. It. You it's done. It. It's already done. But where in New Jersey? Yeah, well, actually, North Jersey might be about 25 miles due west uh, from Manhattan in a little town of Chatham.
0: Okay, so you went from a little bit west of New York City, way west to Scottsdale. Yeah. What brought you here?
5: Well, actually, I had interviewed with some uh, CPA firms at the time. I was coming out of school in Philadelphia, and uh, um, it was a little bit of a, of a fluke, but nevertheless, they just started asking me places I wanted to live, and I, I picked a number of places and took interviews across mostly the west, the southeast. But well. you'd never been here. Actually, I had been here, but I went to a number of places I hadn't <laughs> been before. But this still impressed me the most. Why? Well, frankly, it was just it's a wonderful community. It's a it's, uh, It's clean. It's nice. It's safe. A lot of opportunity here, and one of the things really coming away from the East Coast is that there's just a a little bit of an embedded uh, kind of uh, structure. uh, But people here are very welcoming. I think I've become one of them, Uh, in spite of what I just said. I I, I was going to remind you of that. (laughs) that. (laughs) But in any case, it's just it's a wonderful place and great people. So,
0: and you've also seen the growth. Oh, absolutely, absolutely.
5: And, of course, one of the challenges in any city,
0: especially if it's a popular place, is how you manage the growth.
5: That is exactly right. Sometimes you can become a victim of your own success with growth and with with prosperity if you don't manage it well and it ends up reversing on you. And Scottsdale did have a little bit of that problem. Well, I, you know, it's, it's interesting. It depends upon what time frame that you look at. Yeah. But there's always been a bit of an adjustment. But one of the things that's been sort of a stabilizing factor for the city of Scottsdale has been the tourism, the element of tourism. We entertain now 9 million people a year here in Scottsdale. So and that doesn't mean they're all here at the same time. But nevertheless, it's quite a additional uh, strain on capacity and infrastructure, and all of those things that we have to build in for it.
0: You know, we talk about the word, and you've heard it many times, and you, know, you see it especially in places like Barcelona and Venice. You know, Over tourism, you talk to the folks in Greece. They oh, we have a solution to that. We're now letting people know that they can have a great time here in October through March, which is the opposite for where you go through because m- February March here is busy.
5: Yeah. Uh, have you tried to figure out a great off season approach? Well, I'd say it's some, one of the things that we're working with. But, it, And I don't know what the climate year-round is in Greece and then maybe some of the other destinations. But certainly one thing we used to say a lot is that, hey, if we didn't have the extreme heat in, in the summer, everybody would be living here. So it's a little bit of a tempering fact. Now, that doesn't sound like a branding message. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But the fact is that... Uh, but we've uh, taken uh, efforts really for our shoulder seasons to sort of equal it out a little bit, but also to get greater utilization of the infrastructure and, and everything else that's here. And of
0: course, we're coming from the Phoenician, which has a history as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I go back to the days of what Charles Keating and yeah. and yeah. the Savings and Loan debacle and the, and the Keating Five or the Keating Four. I can't. Well,
5: well you've you really got it nailed on some of that. But yeah, absolutely. And and this property, you know, obviously went through some real turmoil. It did, but it survived. Well, it did, and it was may have been a little bit ahead of its time when it was built. When it first was opened, it was truly five star when nothing else could come close. Right, and right. and it really wasn't at that point in time probably any way to pencil out yeah. the property and and with the cost that was invested in it.
0: And of course, the great the great disconnect was during the savings and loan debacle. This hotel was being run for a brief period of time by the
5: Resolution Trust Corporation. Yeah, no. it was the feds. And of course, then you know, of course the the the, the next owners really picked it up at a, at a very different price and, and
0: not only that they were able then to maintain going back to the five-star quality before and then bring it to today
5: oh absolutely well it's just one of many really and I mean this is a great property there's no doubt about it but there are a lot of great properties in the city of Scottsdale and uh, spoken like the mayor yes <laughs> <laughs> from Jersey <laughs> I, I think that's a role I'm playing here it <laughs> no. is, it is.
0: let's go back to the elitist attitude of so many of my friends in New York who would say to me back in the early 70s, there's no there there west of the Hudson River. And they couldn't believe, and I go back to my days at Newsweek. I was the correspondent for Newsweek.
5: They just thought it was Cactus Here and old Hopalong Cassidy movies. Um, Not true. Well, a lot of them are survivors of the Big Apple, and they're here now. But nevertheless, in spite of some of that, uh, one of the things that really changed us uh, a great deal uh, and really made a more rapid uh, development of folks from the East Coast specifically was when we became an NFL Super Bowl city, and that certification. I was here for the first, I was here for that Super Bowl the yeah, first one, yeah. Yeah, and it really, it, it was like signing a certificate of acceptance. For I people believe on the East Coast. they played that one in Tempe. Uh, yes, they did. You're right. Yeah, right. They right. did. And the old, uh, well, actually, that stadium is, is completely redone now. I know.
0: So. I remember because I was at NBC then, so we had the game. So we were out here broadcasting for the Today Show. And it was a crazy time. I mean, it was it,
5: it, it did put you on the map. Well, in each and well, it what I was going to say is most of the people who had come here previous to that were from the, either the Plains states or from the Midwest to some degree, and uh, Texas and at a point in time California. But now that that that's gone up and down a little bit.
0: Right, but that everything west of the Hudson started showing up.
5: Yeah, yeah, they did. Well, most specifically the Northeast, and PGA, right. Oh, absolutely! We got the largest, uh, obviously PGA uh, tournament on the on the tour. Exactly. Now, if the Cardinals could only win a few more games,
0: well, that uh, would help. Yeah. Would <laughs> well, I'm a big Larry Fitzgerald fan, so I'm, I'm, oh, just, yeah. I'm just, you know, and, and this well, is well,
5: irrespective of anything else, I am as well as far as yeah. Larry Fitzgerald, a great I mean, human being. I mean,
0: what a nice guy, right? Yeah. I mean, what a nice guy, and the guy loves to travel. He is a travel addict. He will. Tra- I mean, his passport is full in the offseason... He's not doing, you know, he's not doing personal endorsements. He's literally d- d- discovering new cultures all around the world. Yeah. He's doing it. All right, so the Cardinals notwithstanding, right, or the Diamondbacks, right? <laughs> I had to mention them too. Yeah,
5: well, I guess we're in you might even throw the suns in there, but nevertheless. All right, while
0: we're at it, we got the trifecta going on. you got work to do. <laughs>
5: You've work to do, right? But the culture itself is eye-opening when people want to actually get immersed in it. The culture itself, you're talking about within within the valley here yeah. and within the state of Arizona. Yeah, yeah I, I think it's interesting because when people come here, there's always a little bit of an effect of what they bring with them. And so uh, that's something that we, you know, uh, we certainly respect differences in thinking, but we love what we, do, we have and what we do. We just really don't want people to change the general overall culture, as you're saying, and frankly, the inclusiveness, the acceptance and... Uh, and all the positive things about it other than even just the weather. Okay, so for your occasional New Jersey friends who visit, where do you take them for breakfast? Well, I oftentimes, well, I have a number of places, and I, always, I, I really don't want to be able to go through the whole list of them, eh? but nevertheless, I probably— I'll play a favorite, come on. I'll, I'll play a favorite, but only for you, Peter Redden. In any case, what we've got is uh, Breakfast Club is probably a place right downtown in Old Town. You're probably familiar with it. It's become a, a real mainstay. Now, if I was going for traditional, there's other places like Randy's and other places that are really sort What's of... What's special about down. the Breakfast Club? It's just sort of a, a... Well, it's simple. It's simple, but it's also as, as attractive as just a gathering place, really, actually, for a lot of millennials and uh, we, we don't
0: people. mention that word on the show, sorry. Oh, all right, okay, yeah. well, then
5: I don't know how I can take that back. You can <laughs> edit it out. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> But in any case, no, it's, it really is just, uh, it's got a great environment, it, and, it, and it's a popular spot. But there are a lot of other places that are okay. very nice, too. Well, let's play another favorite, lunch. Well, lunch, I'm a pretty simple guy on lunch, but, I mean, I will say that uh, one of my favorite places is a little place uh, right in downtown Old Town because it's close to the office. That's a, a, so it's Carson's. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with I'm it, not. but Carson's a great little place, great food. It happens to be a little bar and grill, but it's just really a, a nice place to have a solid lunch. And uh, oftentimes, whether believe it or not, I'd like to go and read the paper. It's generally an electronic edition right now, but nevertheless, uh, and, you know, just
0: read. So you really want to go there and read the bad news by yourself? <laughs>
5: Yeah, well, I like to put a positive <laughs> t- spin on everything, yeah, but, I guess. You know, but yeah, but, you the may mayor's eating alone reading the paper. It's <laughs> not good. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I do get a little bit of a surprise look sometimes when I am there doing just exactly that. I really don't, you know, I'm not not—I'm shunning people or anything, but obviously its I'm there for other reasons. Right. Can't you see I'm eating? <laughs> I know. Okay, okay. And dinner? Uh, dinner, there's a number of places, but I would have to say – uh, really a favorite for mine is again downtown in Old Town, and it's uh, Uncle Sal's. Why? And it's a restaurant. Uh, it's just it's a more a lo- more of a local place, really. I mean, it's not one of the, the hot new trendy places, but it's just it's got some great history, and it's a wonderful Italian restaurant. And what do you order there? <laughs> well, believe it or not, most of the time I order a steak with vegetables and uh... <laughs> Man, now I know why you're reading the paper by well, yourself. And- <laughs> <laughs> Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in Far Bombay. Come on and fly. As many with of you me. know, let's I fly, work
0: as a fireman as, on a volunteer away. basis uh, since I'm 18 in New York. I'm on duty three days a week, seven months a year, and I never go anywhere. Uh, whether it's uh, you know Scottsdale or Siberia. <laughs> without visiting the fire department. And the reason for that is not only simple, it's meaningful. They've been to everybody's hotel. They've been to everybody's restaurant. They've been to everybody's house. They know where to go. They know where not to go. And they also know where to eat. (laughs) So it's a home run every time I do it. Plus, I learn everything. And I've never been forgetting the fact that might be some professional courtesy because I'm also a fireman. Any of you listening are welcome at any firehouse in the world And you want great stories, that's where they are. Unless they're out on an alarm, they're more than happy to see you. And in many cases, uh, if you call ahead, you might even do a ride-along and and see a city in a completely different way. Uh, So it's, of course, appropriate that I welcome Tom Shannon, the fire chief of Scottsdale, Arizona, to the show. Hi, Tom.
2: Sure, my pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Chief.
0: Um, You know, before you were here, you were in Salt Lake.
2: I was just for about a year. Prior to that, I retired from the city of Glendale right here in town. Uh, but I was in Salt Lake for just about a year during the downturn in the economy. And then you came back. Came back to Scottsdale, yep. Why? Well, there was a friend of mine that I think you've met before, Willie McDonald was here. Yeah. And uh, he, things weren't going uh, super great in terms of the downturn and being able to sell my house and wasn't working out in Salt Lake for that reason. It's a lovely city in every other way and the job was amazing, but family and life brought me back to Scottsdale and Willie was looking for somebody to help him out in the emergency management and uh, training worlds and so I came back. And now you're chief. I am. He informed me about two months after uh, I got there that he was going to San Jose, so, <laughs> <laughs> so he left me high and dry. Lucky for you. <laughs> yeah, he
0: didn't left you. Yeah, he left. He left you lucky. <laughs> he sure did. But when you're in an area like this, that's dry, uh-huh. that's hot. Yep, you've got certain challenges. We do, especially when you look about climate change and global warming and wildfires.
2: Right, and you know, Scottsdale has four distinct fire service problems. Of course, everybody's doing EMS now, and that's predominantly the work that we do.
0: Well, most people don't realize that most of your calls are EMS.
2: They really are. We're up in the 80th percentile for that type of call for service. But
0: every fire call you get, you're rolling EMS, aren't
2: you? We are, and in in, in the Phoenix metropolitan area, we're a fire-based EMS system, which means there's always two paramedics on every fire truck. The ambulance transportation side supports us in getting folks to the hospital if they need to go.
0: Because response time is
2: critical. Absolutely. So this four distinct areas of course we're in a we're in a suburban area in the south part of the city. Uh, as we move towards the central part of the city, we get into that resort corridor. This is indicative of that, where we have a different kind of well, service I, I, li- I
0: like now. how you call it the resort corridor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. It's, you know, it's it's a lot of our visitors. There's not a ton of residential around here. It's a lot of uh, resort and visitor t- sorts of experiences. As we move even further north, we get some light industrial around the airport and uh, mostly uh, high, uh, high-tech hospital systems. That we call that the Cure Corridor. And then north uh, of the city, we have a wildland-urban inter- interface, very much like Salt Lake City, where we have a preserve that is just absolutely the, the jewel of Scottsdale.
0: Do you do swift water rescue, too?
2: We do. Uh, this time of year, at any given moment, if the monsoons hit us, those dry washes become r- rivers. Lethal. quite Lethal. lethal. And one of the amazing things about Scottsdale is our public works division did such a great job in shaping the center of the city to move water in a way that's very predictable. But it does include swift water, and we get swift water rescue in the winter and in the summer.
0: Wow. Now, in our department, we have three kinds of alarms. Obviously, medical, Mm -hmm. which which in our case involves medevac. So we're we're helicoptering people out. Sure. We're not talking about automobile accidents, because where I'm a fireman, there are no cars except fire trucks. Gotcha. We're talking overdoses, heart attacks, strokes. Sure. And they all happen at 2 in the morning, if you've noticed. <laughs> um, the second call that we get are automatic alarms, yeah. right, from restaurants where the pilot light triggers an alarm, sure. and there's really no fire at all. Sure, But when you get one of those alarms, as you know, everybody rolls because it's coming from a place with a lot of people. Well, you know, we have
2: such respect for the folks who work in the less populated areas because you frankly are out there sometimes by yourself for quite quite long time working those firefighting incidents we're blessed here in the valley in that this is the single largest response system second only the fdny in terms of size literally from the superstition mountains to the harquahala valley south to really almost Florence, and north to Black Canyon City. It's one singular response system. It's dispatched in the same so way. So
0: everybody's mutually aiding. <laughs> it's, it's called automatic aid. Yeah. It,
2: it's, essential, it's essential to getting the quickest resource to the citizen or visitor, no matter where you're at in the city.
0: See, in our situation, we have 19 communities of which 12 have fire departments. So by definition, everybody's mutually aiding. You have to be. Yeah.
2: We really do. You know, these days, nobody really cares uh, who's paying you or what color your truck is. They just need help, and and, and they expect you to get there.
0: Exactly. So let's go back to the fire situation in terms of global warming, climate change, and wildfires. Mm -hmm. As we're talking, Mm -hmm. there are wildfires in the summer in Alaska. Mm -hmm. There are wildfires in the summer in Siberia, which they can't even put out. I mean people don't realize this, I'm sure you do, Chief, but most people don't realize that if a fire is moving at two and a half miles an hour, mm-hmm. you can't you can't fight it.
2: No, you can't fight it, you can't outrun it and so that's why Our contingency plans include such enormous relationship building with not only local hotshot teams, but also state assets and then federal assets, and we pull that trigger very fast. The preserve that I mentioned, which is in the north and northeast part of our our city, in fact, there's a a Rio Verde fire going on right now. It's about 2,000 acres just to the northeast of Scottsdale. We were, We are super aggressive in terms of jumping on those fires, and then we call the ball quick to call in state and federal assets. You don't wait. We do not wait. Uh, air assets are up and moving fast because not only uh, will the fire get away from you, as you just mentioned, but the the the, uh, the the weather changes that are sometimes created by the fire itself will take it in places that you just don't expect.
0: Yeah, people don't realize that wind is a factor of temperature. It is. And that's when you have radical changes in wind direction caused by heat.
2: Indeed, you know you've got the the prevailing winds which will push things to the to the north uh, east uh, typically in this in this time of day. But then, as that fire really gets going, it'll rip through, and sometimes it'll cut back even to the south, depending on what pressures are in existence. You know,
0: you talk about air assets. I'm going to ask you a question that nobody's given me an answer to. Maybe you have it. I just I can't figure it out because it seems to me like it's a simple solution. You get an old DC-10 and you fill it up with water. And you do an airdrop, Mm -hmm. but then that DC-10 has to go back and get refilled. And in the time it goes back, you got a problem. Mm -hmm. They need three DC-10s.
2: We do, and boy, it's it's a matter of uh, how many of those air assets are available. It is that is a finite resource throughout the country, not only in the Southwest.
0: Wow! Listen, you got a really tough job, and you do it well, and you're back home.
2: I I
4: am. The The charge for looking at this pamphlet is three (laughs) dollars.
6: charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. Most
0: people who come to Arizona, I've said this before, if they're here on vacation, they never leave the resort or the hotel. They have no idea of the history here. They have no idea the, of the culture here. And if they, they want to think they know about the art of the West... They think it's always Remington. Well, it's not. And here to dispel that (laughs) is the chief curator at Scottsdale's Museum of the West, Dr. Tricia Loesha. How are you?
7: Very good. Hi, Peter. So it's not just Remington. No, it's absolutely (laughs) not. And that's, that's one of the gems about our museum is we often surprise our visitors with what we offer.
0: Well, why don't you surprise me right now?
7: All right. Well, we are a new institution. We're five years now strong. Uh, We opened in January of 2015. That's relatively
0: new in the museum world.
7: It certainly is. And we offer nine different galleries that are constantly rotating and changing. So when you come back, you know, if it's fall or spring, you're, you're going to see something different. And we also have uh, collections that are more what we call long-term, so permanent with the museum. But let's
0: get beyond the stereotypes mm-hmm. of cactus and cowboys. I mean, you're you're dealing with some cutting-edge stuff.
7: We are, and we have you know we have a lot of uh, wonderful exhibitions coming up. We have our our. Long-term Hopi pottery collection as well, which you know introduces visitors to the Southwest and the Hopi cultures and, and the beautiful pottery by artists such as Nampeo, renowned Hopi uh, masterworks. We have the Abe Hayes Spirit of the West. So if you're interested in spurs and boots and saddles, you can you can see some of that too.
0: Wow. You have an entire spur exhibit?
7: We, we do. We have really? some of the most renowned uh, spurs and spur makers uh, in, in the country, G.S. Garcia and many others. Mm-hmm. All silver? all silver and hand hand engraved and beautifully the leather on them is exquisitely tooled and they all tell a story and that's that's really how we've positioned ourselves since before we opened. Uh, we wanted to be unique in the American West as our institution is and really you know, use these beautiful art and objects and artifacts to tell stories about people and the diverse cultures of the West.
0: And I think you would agree with me that art means nothing without storytelling.
7: Absolutely. You have to have those great stories. And
0: who tells those stories for you
7: we have a variety of ways that we do this sometimes it's through uh, like our docents we have over a hundred core docents that give tours throughout the museum and we also uh, take uh, guided tours and we have different kinds of interactives such as kiosks where we'll interview people let's say it's a, a collector and we'll have them telling their story about how they collected something
0: now you're an arizona native i am you've seen all the changes yes how has the art changed?
7: You know, the art is really, it's constantly transforming, and that's one of the wonderful things about being a curator and working with these collections is they're, they're always transforming. We have um, you know, very modernistic uh, paintings that we will be showing with Maynard Dixon's American West, and that opens in October. On the fifteenth to the public, so that's kind of a, a really um, new view uh, of the American West, and that's that's another way we're positioning ourselves through this art, is to show a new perspective on the West.
0: You know, when I first came here, I was so stunned by the topography, Mm -hmm. and this goes back, you know, forty-five years, actually longer than that. I'm assuming that if you dig deep enough, you could do an entire exhibit called "The Art of the Rock."
7: No, oh, we could, you know, and, and in the Maynard Dixon show, we will have lots of, um, you know, geographical uh, structures and, and and geology to to experience in these in these paintings. Um, we have our museum, which is also, you know, shows a lot of transformation, speaking of that, of the American West. It's a very modern-looking building. It's a lead gold standard. So we have special features such as a weeping wall that is water condensing down the side of a wall in our sculpture garden outside, you know, that really addresses the issues of water and the sacredness of it in this country. So there, there are many aspects, not only within the museum, but outside of it, and, and the building as well. As well
0: let's get down to a definition of terms the west itself are we dealing with what 19 states we west are. of the mississippi
7: yes
0: can you name all 19
7: well i could try but we <laughs> might be here a while <laughs>
0: But the bottom line is people forget how many states actually qualify as the West.
7: That's very true. 19 states west of the Mississippi. And we also include provinces of Canada and and regions of Mexico, northern and western Mexico. So it really gives us a, a wonderful way in which we can bridge that old West with the new West and the future West, which is part of our mission.
0: Barry Goldwater.
7: Very Goldwater yes.
0: I mean I remember him as the you know the esteemed senator from Arizona, mm-hmm. ran for president in 1964, mm-hmm. lost uh, former Air Force guy right you yes. even have an exhibit on him
7: we do and a lot of people are very surprised by that to go back to your earlier statement about you know that the was, an was he an artist yes he was he was an artist he was a magnificent photographer and that's what a lot of people are really taken by they didn't realize you know you know before.
0: It's, it's i think so you may be ahead of the game here but there's so many world leaders in history that if you take a look at them they were also artists mm-hmm. winston churchill was a painter right right i mean yeah. and and you look at his art and that tells a story based on where he was at that particular point in his life.
7: Absolutely. And that's what these photographs do. They're of landscapes and people, the Navajo people and Hopi, um, horses and dramatic skies, much like Maynard Dixon's paintings. So he was at a particular place and moment in time in these very sacred places that you know, allowed him to capture a certain time period.
0: When people come to the museum, what's the biggest surprise to them that they're not expecting?
7: Well, I would say probably the uh, it's it's a mix. It's a juxtaposition of both a very contemporary and modern building and our size as well. We have you know two stories. we're forty three thousand square feet plus a library.
0: So you're not going to see it in a day.
7: No, but we are we are uh, you know able to be toured and viewed in probably about an hour, an hour and a half. So if you're just stopping over, It's a great place to uh, spend a little time, but you can certainly spend a whole day if you'd like.
0: And open seven days a week?
7: It sure is. Free? Mm -hmm. No, there is a charge. What is it? And it's $13 per person.
0: And if you bring your own spurs?
7: And if you bring your own spurs, (laughs) I don't think that'll get you a discount, but we'll sure be Unless you want to leave
0: them to the museum. We'd
7: like to see them. (laughs) I I bet you would.
0: Are you getting great community support now?
7: We are, you know, it was your question is a very um, important one because being brand new in the museum industry, of course, it was a you know it's been a milestone to reach this point, but being a Smithsonian affiliate has definitely given us that prominence. What does lift. that mean? It means that you know we are part of the Smithsonian institutions of museums. We get a lot of work loaned to us from the Smithsonian, and we can travel shows and take their shows as well and do exhibits with them. There's a lot of other opportunities too, but uh, you know, it really it 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 increases the bar, you know, for us, and 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 we have a certain level and expectation that we we must meet in the quality of our exhibitions.
0: Well, speaking of expectation, there's a certain stereotype that when you say a museum of the West, it means it's Old America, which ended up with John Steinbeck and the, and, and the Dust Bowls, and we're, we're done by 1940. But, right. you're, but you're not
7: absolutely not you know and we did have uh like posters a poster exhibit that talks that had some of john steinbeck's uh work illustrated in in movie posters but you know we we go uh, beyond that we have a paul kelly exhibition right now and paul kelly from the mountains to the moon literally he was a nasa artist and was with nasa the team neil armstrong the day before the they launched and this is our 50th you know the year and anniversary of the landing on the moon. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal
4: for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't
6: care. I am a passenger.
0: When I first came to Arizona back in 1971 as a correspondent for Newsweek, uh, the food sucked. I would just have to say that. It was... Basically, you could have a burger, you could have a steak, you could have a lot of steak if you wanted to. Um, I never really looked at Arizona as a gastronomic capital of the world, let alone the Americas. Well, things have changed, and joining me now, uh, she writes for WriteOnRuby.com, but she really has a love affair with food. Uh, Christina Beretta, how are you?
4: Good. How are you? Thanks for having me today. Yeah.
0: I mean, look, you're not a local, but you've been here for about 11 years.
4: Yes, exactly.
0: And you moved here from Boston? Right, lived right downtown. Right. So, Boston, you know, my experience with Boston and food is different cuz it's legal seafood and it's 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 all over the harbor. It's everyone, the original clam chowder. I mean, That's right. We, we can talk about that all day long, right? Right. When you this must have been the biggest culture shock to you when you came out west.
4: Well, you know, we had visited here before we moved because I have family here. So, we had um, sought out those gems. I remember Michael's at the Citadel was one of my favorites back then. Why? Um, he was just doing innovative, inventive things that, as you said, it was almost surprising for somebody not living in um, Arizona. But as we would come out, we would find these little hidden gems and these chefs who were shining. And when we finally moved in 2008, the I think the scene was just taking off. I feel very lucky that we moved when we did.
0: I mean, I remember... It's not that long ago, I went to a sushi place in, in Phoenix and their, you know, their sushi was like imitation crab. In those, oh, remember yeah, that? that's not good. No, <laughs> things have changed there too because you can source everything now.
4: Yes, and, and amazing things. You can source things from, you know, Japan and Hawaii and, and every place that all the high-end places source from.
0: And different ethnic food, you can get anything here, right?
4: Yes. Um, one of my favorite places is Ban, which is a Thai place. They do street food, so you should seek that out while you're here.
0: You know what? I lived in Bangkok for 25 years. Oh, nice. Uh, and I was always eating on the street. Mm-hmm. And my philosophy was, as long as it's cooked, I'm eating it, right? <laughs> the only thing I wouldn't eat or, or would be a, 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 a soda with ice in it. Right, you know, right. People think that ice is not going to get them in trouble. It's what's going to get them in trouble. Absolutely everything. And they'll think time. it's something they ate when it was just but the ice. The ice. But if it's on the street and it's cooked, you go for it, right? Right. And of course, anybody who makes a great pot thai or a great meat crop, I'm there. That's, that's the Thai food. Okay, so great Thai food in Arizona, which never used to be the case.
4: Right. I, a lot of the ethnicities, there's great Cambodian food, there's great Filipino food, and then of course we have regional Mexican, um, which has branched out from the days that you probably Well, visited. when I was
0: here, it was like, how much is that enchilada? I mean, it was like, not exactly innovative. More border food. Yeah. Or,
4: right. And now you have regions that represent, you know, cultures and families
0: and people who don't understand mexican food were bastardized by their experiences in america initially right. because when you go back to mexico you're dealing with you know unesco world class heritage food mm-hmm. it's unbelievable you can take any mexican restaurant and and go one on one or as i like to say mano a mano <laughs> with any other restaurant in the world and the mexican restaurants will win Because that is unbelievable food. And now it's heading north. You're actually getting great food.
4: And Silvana, who's one of the best Mexican chefs in the country, was nominated again for a James Beard Award. And she's right here feeding us in Phoenix.
0: All right. So let's talk about, I mean, the surprises, right? Because that's what you write about all the time, Mm -hmm. right? And by the way, to be in the restaurant business today, I mean, with everybody being a celebrity chef, I mean, are are we done with that?
4: I think so. I think people can see through somebody who's not in the kitchen, to somebody who's, and not all celebrity chefs are like that. Of course, they're very impassioned ones.
0: I get the passion, but I also know physical possibility. Mm-hmm. And that is, if you have 25 restaurants, right. you can't have 25 Michelin-starred restaurants because you can't be in the kitchen.
3: Right.
4: And I think here you will find that heart and soul in Scottsdale. Um, when I interview people, they all talk about what a collaborative effort it is, where this chef will help out this chef. There's a lot of support. There's a lot of mentorship here.
0: And because of that, they're making news.
4: Yes, yeah, and we're really on an upward trajectory. This year, we had ten nominations for the James Beard Award, which is pretty amazing.
0: And what kind of food?
4: Oh, th- there's um, best service was Kai, which does um, indigenous Native American in a five star way.
0: Let's roll th- Let's go through that again. <laughs> indigenous, indigenous Native American food.
4: Yes, they use ingredients that are grown on the reservations around them, and they integrate it into these artful plates. Which
0: must destroy all the stereotypes. It has yes. to.
4: Yes. Yeah. It's pretty exciting. There's another chef, Brett Vibber and Tamara Stanger, who forage. They'll be out before this service even starts early in the morning, picking, you know, cactus flowers and pickling them or buds. Well, let's go back desert to Kai. Buds. What's
0: their signature dish?
4: Well, you know, they they are seasonal. So.
0: What's their seasonal signature dish?
4: I know that they they do um, a dessert, I forget, I mean a dish, I forget what it's called, but it represents um, vegetables in the desert, so they will create things that look like sand and then have, you know, blossoms. By the way, my idea of vegetables and... in
0: the desert is sand, <laughs> so we're good.
4: <laughs> well, this has actual vegetables on the edible sand, so. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, but they've won, um, it's the only five-star, five-diamond actually restaurant in Arizona.
0: Wow, and and I don't think anybody's doing what they're doing.
4: No, they're they're pretty amazing.
0: All right. So there's one. Yes. And when we come back, I want to talk about the other surprises. Great. I mean, I'm sure we can get better Japanese food than imitation crab these
4: days. Yes. Much better.
0: Good. We're, we're talking <laughs> We're talking to Christina Barretta from rightonruby.com. And now let's move on to like times of the day. What are your big surprises for me for breakfast?
4: Well, I think another surprise is um, the fact that we have two growing seasons here. So a lot of the chefs use you know, the bounty that's around us and I love lawns at the Hermosa for their brunch. That chef has been in the agricultural industry
0: for years, and he
4: really supports the purveyors.
0: Okay, so what's brunch at Hermosa?
4: So they do special dishes that are only served Saturday and Sunday. He Of
0: course, you got to know that. See You knew that. <laughs>
4: but he cures his own bacon, so one of the big draws there is his sizzling bacon that he puts on a cast iron pan. And then he pours a and maple that pan gas- is very very hot. hot because it has to sizzle. No, no, it's really hot. I know that. Yes. <laughs> you touched it.
0: <laughs> uh, I made that mistake once. Yes.
4: <laughs> and he pours um, a maple syrup gastrique over that, so it really just you know it's meaty and s- syrupy and sweet and a it's perfect a, start. It's, it's the
0: opposite of the sea salt caramel. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it really is.
4: Start your day off right.
0: Oh no, kidding! Then take a nap. Right. All right. And what else?
4: And it's in a beautiful setting that is historic, so I think it really gives visitors a feel for our uh, history here.
0: Now, they also do a lobster tempura there? Yes,
4: yes. So he takes slipper lobster, and and instead of putting the egg on starch, he puts What kind of lobster? Slipper lobster. They're a different type of lobster. They're almost like a cross between, you know, large shrimp and lobster, but they have tails. And he cuts that up, puts it in the light tempura batter, and then your poached eggs on top. And then he does um, See, a chimayo. A be- that's
0: a whole lot better than eggs benedict. I'm sorry.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's it's totally new, but it's pretty decadent.
0: Yes, it is, and no calories whatsoever. No. No. Yeah. No butter. <laughs> All right. What about lunch?
4: Well, I'd say if you were spending the day and we were touring and eating, maybe head down to Old Town, and there's a Old Town where? Old Town Scottsdale. Okay. And there's a- and
0: by the way, let's be honest, okay? <laughs> I remember going to Orlando one year and they said, Oh, let's go to Old Town. I said, You can't have an Old Town in Orlando. What does it go back to, Dude. 1959? <laughs> right. And they said, Yeah. <laughs> so, how far back does Old Town Scottsdale go? You
4: know, that's a good question. I should know since I've done articles on yeah. it, but um, it is the, the most historic part of Scottsdale. Well, let's just
0: say Old Town Scottsdale the is older than New Town Scottsdale. Scottsdale. That's okay. right. And what am I going to find there?
4: Well, there's a new wine bar that I love. I don't know if you're familiar with the fact that Arizona has over 100 wineries now.
0: Can you name the one state in America that doesn't make wine? No. I can. It's North Dakota. Interesting. But every other state in America does it, even Alaska, mm,
4: that's even really Hawaii. Interesting.
0: Right? Texas, Oklahoma. Y- now, let's say you have 100 different kinds of wine from Arizona.
4: 100 wineries. And actually, it's oh, even 111 more, 11, the last time. Okay, I so
0: I have to ask the really stupid, elitist, condescending question. Mm-hmm. Is it any good?
4: It's actually very good. In fact, every year we're garnering more awards. Sam Pillsbury this year entered 14 awards. Especially if you do a blind t- tasting. Especially if you do yes.
0: a blind tasting. Yes, Because otherwise, Arizona just gets beaten up because people can't believe you can do it.
4: That's a very good point. And we've heard that, that sometimes people have preconceived notions, but we do- Sometimes? My- <laughs> Almost all.
0: What was the last time you went to a restaurant anywhere in the world and say, what kind of Arizona wine do you have on your list? People don't do that.
4: No, they don't think, uh, again, it's that barren desert. They don't realize that we have all different elevations. And... and it's
0: not cactus wine.
4: No, definitely not cactus wine.
0: Although there is a cactus liqueur.
4: There is. I'll have to seek that yes, out. Yes, there is.
0: Yes, there is. All right, so that's lunch. What about dinner?
4: Well, Charlene Badman just won the James Beard Award as Best Chef Southwest. And they're also the first restaurant to curate and an all-Arizona wine list. And the restaurant's name F&B. and b
0: mm-hmm. And they curated their own, there you go, their own Arizona wine yep, list. it's
4: all-Arizona wine. They have a list A and a list B. The list A is all-Arizona.
0: Okay, so on the list A, is there such a thing as a great Arizona Sauvignon Blanc?
4: You know, I haven't had many or a
0: Pinot Noir. I probably Pi- not.
4: No, because Pinot Noir doesn't do as well here. Right. because You've got to go to Oregon. Lo- exactly. Right. But we have wines like Malvasia Blanca that I think are really defining our um, landscape. So seek that out. And Grenache has done very well so here. So we're talking
0: mostly red wine.
4: No, uh, Malvasia is a white. They oh, really? White. Mm-hmm. Very floral, very fruity.
0: Very fruity. Mm-hmm. With that desert bouquet. Yes. And I say it again? You know how people serve wine, they always have to whisper? Yeah. Oh, that's a desert bouquet. <laughs> All right. And you actually like the Arizona wines.
4: I do. I really do.
0: All right. But uh, are they shipping them out of the state now?
4: Yes. Yeah. Um, I know you, they, you can get some in California. It depends on the distributors where yeah. you can get them, but...
0: And one other thing which I think people don't realize... So many people in this country now, in different states, are doing single malt whiskey. They're doing rum. <laughs> they're doing all that never were done before. There's an Arizona rum.
4: Yes, and it just took one of the highest honors in an international competition. That's um, Elgin Distillery.
0: And where's the base?
4: It is down south in S- Elgin, which is um, about an hour and a half outside of Tucson.
6: Riding along in my automobile My baby beside
8: me at the wheel and playing the radio With no particular place to go
0: Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Those of you who are world travelers might understand the words clay door." Some of you are intimidated by it because it also means concierge <laughs> or, or the gold keys, of course. But uh, my next guest I know for a long time because she's been here for a while. In fact, uh, she is the head concierge here at the Phoenician, and her name is Michelle Caldwell. How are you?
9: I'm fabulous. How about yourself?
0: I'm doing fine, but people really do not understand what concierges do. I mean, the year is 2019, and they think you just get theater tickets.
9: Oh, no. No. The thing I think that has made everyone a little concerned about concierge is the digital age. They think they can find things on Yelp, on Google, they can do their own research, but come to me. I've gone and done all these things. I've gone to the restaurants. I was just out on the Verde River on a kayak with squirt bottles. So I know what to go do and see.
0: Oh, so you actually have fun.
9: Sometimes. Okay. Yeah. Well,
0: actually, you're, 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 <laughs> but there's a lot to be said for local knowledge. I mean, you're an Arizona girl for all intents and purposes. Absolutely. Right. You grew up in Mesa. I did. All right. And, you, and you've been here for 14 years.
9: I've been in here actually over 40. We won't disclose how old I am, but I've been here long enough to know.
0: Okay. (laughs) So, okay, Michelle, where are the bodies buried? Let's go. Okay. (laughs) But seriously, guests who don't understand what you do or guests who think they understand what you do can come up with some pretty crazy requests.
9: Oh, yes. And I love those crazy requests. You know, the guests that want to go the next morning to, you know, Lake Powell on a houseboat with a catered lunch by a chef and have some, you know, uh, jet skis on the back end.
0: And did they make it up there? We
9: can aptly make it happen. I actually had uh, mimosas on their chartered flight as they took off. So uh, basically they were so
0: so drunk they didn't know they weren't in Lake Powell.
9: (laughs) No. The fun thing about using a concierge is we do go out and we try our places. I am tried and true. If you want to know a restaurant, I've gone there and dined. I know the chef. I know their menu. And
0: here's your thing let's just talk about restaurant reservations for a second i hate the concept of restaurants they're they're both the concept of the restaurant that insists on reservations but doesn't honor them or the restaurant that will not take reservations at all it just completely blows me away not only that restaurants will hold back they'll hold back and say they're you know for those people here and if anybody wants to argue this point i'm ready for the fight (laughs) for those people here who think that open table is the solution you're an idiot because anytime and by the way my own staff Falls into this trap. I'll say, hey, can you guys get me a reservation at this restaurant? And they go right online. They say, oh, no seats available, no tables available. Let me guess, you want the open table. Watch this it's called Pick Up Phone.
9: And call, call your concierge. The, well,
0: if you're at the hotel, <laughs> of course. Well, there are a lot of hotels, by the way, that even if you're not staying at the hotel, you can call the concierge. Absolutely.
9: Right? I never know when you're coming back to stay with me, so I'm out to build a relationship. You can call me if you're having a tough time getting into the brand new Ocean 44. Give me a call. I'll give. Them, I'll call my contacts and see what I can do for you. And
0: by the way, nothing beats that conversation. I've never been denied, literally, a, a restaurant reservation by having a, a one-to-one conversation with the maitre d' as opposed to going online. Absolutely. Unless you want to look at your restaurant reservation as a commodity, which I don't think you want to do.
9: Absolutely not. I mean, that and that's why I spend hours uh, working on my relationships. I have gone to the restaurants, met the GMs. I personally reach out to them. Uh, they reach out to us. So it's all about that networking of relationships. Digital is great, well, actually, but it's th- not going to replace me.
0: To ta- <laughs> Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> but to tell you the truth, I'm going to give you the four words that define you. Okay. Ready? Mm-hmm. You know a guy. <laughs>
9: I can get things done. That's right. Hey, she
0: knows a guy. <laughs> right? I mean, and that's really the bottom line, because you just can't go online for this stuff. You cannot. Uh, now when I was growing up, of course, my, I remember my mother walking me into uh, to, to the Hotel Carlton when I was twelve years old in Cannes, and they had their own concierge desk there, which is their own like separate fiefdom, and then they had the reserva- they had the you know the reception desk. And as we walked by the concierge desk, my mother grabbed my hand very strongly and said, don't talk to them. Don't ask them for Aww. anything, because she was terrified that we'd get a bill for everything. <laughs> and in those days, that's exactly what happened. Really? They operated their own separate fiefdom. When you got when you checked out of the hotel in France, you got a regular bill and you got the concierge bill. Oh, times have changed.
9: Times have changed. Yeah, I'm here, free of charge to accommodate guests of all kinds. And by
0: the way, what also has changed here in Scottsdale and the greater Phoenix area is the restaurant scene has actually exploded.
9: Oh, we have fabulous restaurants. A lot of unique local chefs bringing their flavors and their talents.
0: I mean, I remember when I first came to Arizona, I'll tell you when it was. It was 1971. I was sent here to do a piece for Newsweek on John Gardner's Tennis (laughs) Ranch. Camelback, Mm -hmm. right? And all they had for dinner was like a cactus burger. I mean, it was like... (laughs) Really? And this is like supposedly a healthy fare, right? <laughs> Times have changed.
9: Times have greatly changed, yes.
0: What are the hot spots for you now?
9: Hot spots are like Ocean 44. If you love lobster, you've got to have their lobster. As and cargo. by the way, when I
0: think Scottsdale, <laughs> I, of course, I immediately think of lobster.
9: I do. They fly it in fresh daily. So okay. you can come in and have as great of a lobster you'd get on the East Coast over here on the West Coast. West Coast excuse me. Um, then also great creative chefs like Binkley. Chef Binkley has done an amazing thing for our local scene in Valley. Vertu is a great little boutique restaurant. I mean, I could go on and on and give you appetizer and entree and location.
0: Okay, give me the uh, the signature dish I have to order at Ocean 44. It would have to be the lobster wearing the turquoise jewelry.
9: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the lobster. We're in Arizona, corka. come on. No, if you're going to go for turquoise jewelry, you got to go to Kai. Wild Horse Pass has got Kai, Native American, amazing service, amazing menu. That's where you're going to get that really unique experience here in Arizona.
0: Because Michelle Caldwell, the chief concierge here at the Phoenician, knows a guy.
9: I know someone who knows someone and can make it happen.
1: All the world, Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant
6: $75.63.
0: As I've said earlier in the show, I've been coming to this hotel since it opened. It's had many different incarnations and owners. Uh, at one point, it was actually um, run by the United States government when the old savings and loan scandal happened. It was run by the Resolution Trust Corporation. How about that, the general manager was a Fed. <laughs> But you know what? It's one of the great luxury hotels in Scottsdale. Great legendary stuff here. And plus, they've done another major renovation. Um, and uh, if you like to play golf, if you like the spa, if you like the uh, the dry desert heat, this is the place to hang out. And uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later as we've been talking about it throughout the show. But I want to talk to you about something else now. And that is, and we talk about this every week, about the idea of immersing yourself in the local culture and giving back to the people who need it the most every time you travel and I've got a great candidate for you the next time you come to Arizona, and it's a great story. And it started eight years ago by a woman named Jennifer Carraway, and she runs something called the Joy Bus. And it's an amazing story about how it started, but it's just as an amazing story about how it's sustained and how you can get involved. So Jennifer, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks so much for having me. So
0: eight years ago, what were you doing?
3: Um, eight years ago, I was juggling a few different jobs, raising a couple kids. Working in the
0: restaurant industry.
3: Correct. Forever.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right and looking for a way to do something else i was and then and then fate intervened
3: um unfortunately fate did intervene when my friend joy became ill with ovarian cancer um it was that that inspired me to start creating chef inspired meals and bringing them to her home and sitting with her just to try to show her how much i care and
0: that was just a one-to-one correct and sadly she passed away
3: unfortunately
0: but that gave you an idea too
3: It did. It inspired me. She inspired me by her fight to do what I was doing for her on a larger scale because Joy did have an amazing support system, a great family that was by her side every day.
0: And the problem is not everybody has that. Correct. In fact, most people don't have that. This
3: is so true. And so we created the Joy Bus in her honor to try to help those people that did not have what Joy had.
0: Now, Is it a physical bus?
3: It is not. (laughs) You know what, it was just a play on words. Her name was Joy. The Joy bus was something from my childhood that drove around and picked kids up for Sunday school. So what is it? So what we do is we prepare and deliver free chef-inspired meals to homebound cancer patients. Uh, We go to the farm every week to Crooked Sky Farms and he donates all of the organic produce and from that we create our meals.
0: And how many are you doing these days?
3: Um, We're at roughly 50 home visits each
0: week. And for a single operation, that's a lot.
3: It is. And the cool thing about it, it's not just about the food. The compassionate volunteers that help us, they'll sit with the patients. They'll do the well check. They'll, you know, just let them know that their community does care about them.
0: And what I tell people all the time is most people who come to a resort like this, and it's a beautiful resort, they never leave the resort. (laughs) They don't actually get into the community. This is an opportunity if you want to volunteer, right? And what an amazing experience it is to get out in the community.
3: Definitely. And we have a lot of volunteer opportunities. You can not only volunteer to um, host tables. You can prep cook. You can deliver one of our patient meals. There's a lot of opportunities to give back within our organization. And the diner? And the diner. The diner was our brainchild to not only give us the commercial kitchen we needed to prepare the patient meals, but to open to the public so that anybody could feel like they were giving back by going in and buying a Reuben. You know, 100% of those proceeds fund our free programs.
0: You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, all, I'm all about connecting the dots and following the money. There are a lot of great organizations on paper, mm-hmm. but then when you take a look at administrative expense and executive salaries, I have issues with them. Yeah. And, and this goes back to stories I used to do on the United Way. I had problems with them, Right your budget, I would assume, is 98% goes back.
3: You know what? 100% after our operational cost goes back. And one cool thing about our diner is you can walk in and you can see. I mean, at least 40% of the staff that's operating the diner is volunteer. We are a huge volunteer base.
0: So somebody coming out to the Phoenician, for example, and wants to spend a morning an afternoon or an evening with you guys volunteering, it's You don't have to fill out 85 forms. You can do it.
3: No, you just go to our website. You can sign up for... What's the website? The website is thejoybusdiner.com. And you can just fill in a couple hours, a few hours, whatever your time allows you to do. We would love to have the help.
0: Okay, now i got to ask the really stupid question. How's the food? Amazing.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even kidding. Like, it is comfort from scratch. We make the bread. We make the biscuits. We make the sauce. It is
0: amazing. You know, I would think that hotels would also want to get involved because people are ordering out all the time, right? I mean, we're living in the world mm-hmm. of Grubhub, and mm-hmm. right? right? Are you signed up with any of those services yet?
3: We're not. We're not. We want people to come in and, and feel it. what we're doing. Yeah, just be a part of the community that we're servicing.
0: And I have to repeat this because, you know, the real definition of friendship is when somebody sees you at your worst and doesn't flinch and is there right? You're seeing people not at their best. You're seeing people who are alone, who don't have a support system, who need the help. And the help comes in various forms. You're not doctors, but people do have to eat.
3: They do. And I didn't realize how important the companionship aspect of our service is. Yeah, the people want to talk. They do. And even if they have a significant other, they've heard their stories. You know, they want a fresh (laughs) face and a shoulder to lean on. I don't
0: care how sick I am, I don't want to listen to this guy anymore. You (laughs) come talk to me. They've
3: heard it all, you know. So we our volunteers are so amazing, you know, and there's these friendships that we build throughout going into their homes that's invaluable.
0: What's the lesson that you've learned?
3: I've learned that people are genuinely amazing humans, and I was unable to see that prior to creating this organization, but I see the best of humans every single day.
0: And of course, I've got to ask this question, what's your biggest challenge?
3: Funding, (laughs) 100%. I mean, on paper, it sounds like an amazing idea, but when you're giving away your product for free, it's a little difficult
0: to pull off. Well, let's repeat the website again. It
3: is thejoybusdiner.com. But
0: I want to encourage people. This is not just about writing a check and putting it in the mail. When you come to Phoenix or Scottsdale, go check it out. Go in there for the morning, an afternoon, an evening. You don't even have to volunteer. Just buy something. Exactly. Just come have lunch. Wow. I love it. And, and I wish more people would do what you're doing. It's been going on for eight years. I have a lot of help. <laughs> okay what's the most popular dish let me hear it
3: the reuben it's insane i guarantee you will not have a better one anywhere
0: what makes it better love <laughs> i knew you were gonna say that <laughs> that's it it's amazing all right jennifer carraway of course she's the founder and the executive director of the joy bus it is not a bus it's an amazing service but they also have a diner you can go in there and eat and know that everything that you're doing is going to the right people Toto?
10: i have a feeling we're not in kansas anymore
0: Many of my listeners know I've actually been a volunteer fireman since I'm 18. Uh, that was only three years ago. And I still serve three days a week, seven months a year, out in Fire Island in New York. And every time I go somewhere in the world, I want to know more about the fire department, especially about the history. And there's a very interesting museum here. It only goes back, you know, uh, what, 13, 14 years.
8: Well, no, I've been here 13 years. The museum goes back oh, no, to 1961. Oh,
0: even better. Okay. Yeah. The man who just interrupted me, I forgive Sorry. him for that. No, it's Mark Moorhead. He's the curator of education at, I love this, the Hall of Flame.
8: <laughs> yeah. We're a little in. The Museum
0: of Firefighting. Well, at least you have
8: a sense of humor about we it. We try.
0: Uh, if you're going back that that long, then the vehicles that you have, the stories that you have, is the reason why you're on the show because that's where you learn everything.
8: Indeed, most definitely, in and the storytelling and narrative tradition in the fire service is extremely strong. Of course, it's a big part of that world.
0: And you have vehicles from all over the country.
8: Um, actually, we have vehicles from all over the world. Most of them are. Most of the bigger pieces are indeed from the United States, but we have uh, pieces from our oldest piece, which is from 17. 17- 1825 is from the north of England. We have pieces from uh, Germany, from France, from now, in Japan. Now, the, the piece
0: from north of England was that horse-drawn? Uh,
8: it was actually hand-drawn. Really? Most of the hand pumpers were built to be fairly lightweight, and they were. And in many cases, you had a big crew to work the pump handles, so because otherwise almost, you had no pressure. Exactly. And so, I mean, we have my probably my favorite piece in the museum is from Pawtucket, Rhode Island. It was built in Philadelphia in 1844, but it's from Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and it uh, required a crew of about 50 ideally
0: uh assuming you could muster a crew of 50
8: well and yeah exactly and they could because there were lots of good incentives uh, in those in the 19th century to be a firefighter in addition to the same one that you have anymore which is looking cool uh back then also you were often exempt from the draft you were often exempt from military service but ideally yeah, actually wanted 100 guys for that particular piece because after about 15 20 minutes of working you, you, those handles, you just got too tired. Yeah, you got too tired and you needed the, the second crew. What,
0: what people don't realize when I try to explain to them what I do, because I do a lot of exterior firefighting. Yes. If you're holding a fire hose for more than eight minutes, you're in trouble.
8: No, no, no doubt.
0: Because you're, you're holding something at incredible pressure that has the power of a rocket or a jet engine. Yep. And if you ever let go of it, that nozzle will kill you. Mm-hmm. um so when I'm holding that fire hose there are two guys behind me holding me and eight minutes later I get a tap on the shoulder I then shut down the nozzle and I'm relieved and then guess what I gotta go sit down for 20 minutes Absolutely. people forget right mm-hmm. now I understand why you had a hundred guys
8: exactly you now you had to have those hundred guys now the problem with that was that they wanted especially in the bigger urban areas, they wanted to found a professional fire service, and they wanted to make it a government job so they could control it. The city governments, I mean. Uh, the difficulty is 100 guys or so that you need to run one piece of equipment. That's just not going to work. And so it wasn't until the steamers came along mid to late. That gave you the pressure. That gave, gave you that pressure, but also relieved you of the need to have those big crews that, that allowed you to uh, have a professional, you know, to, you could staff an urban fire station with 8, 10, 12 guys a shift, and therefore you were able to, uh, you, you were able to have a professional fire service. Okay,
0: so let me ask a stupid question. Why no, a museum sir. of firefighting in Scottsdale?
8: Well, there's, uh, it turns out that Arizona, at least this part of Arizona, is a good place for a collection of old motor vehicles. Uh, because, because of the corrosion and the things, rust things don't rust here yeah. and the wooden antiques do well here too they because they don't rot here um th- so basically it, i
0: could come to arizona and i wouldn't rust here
8: <laughs> yeah, well yeah we'll <laughs> see about that i don't know i i feel pretty rusty sometimes at 57 but uh the the uh Thing that, that that wasn't by design, though, it came here because of a family, the Getz family, uh, a man named George Getz was given as a Christmas present in uh, 1955, an American La France, uh, American La France fire truck from and by Oshkosh, the way, Wisconsin.
0: Uh- I went to school in Wisconsin so I'm very familiar with American France and at one okay. point they were the only guys making the trucks
8: they were uh, probably I mean a lot of different automotive makers made them but La France was almost certainly at least in America the most famous right. they, they w- customized they, al- they also made city buses but their real specialty was making fire trucks and they you know there's I mean there's a museum in I think it's in South Carolina devoted only to American La France it's a great museum also uh, but uh, we have more LaFrances than than probably anything else that we have we have Mac and uh many others but uh, but the um the Lord francis are kind of dominant in our when
0: i was a correspondent for newsweek i came out to scottsdale because at that point you had the most unusual fire department it was a private fire department and and the and the and they were the first guys who ever painted their trucks lime green yeah rural metro remember yeah. that
8: yeah of course
0: and and you know why because you could see them at night
8: exactly that's there was testing in i believe the 1980s that suggested that really, the great tradition—the red. The red fire truck—it's a lousy color for a fire truck. Well, our
0: fire trucks are yeah. yellow.
8: Oh, there you go. And yeah. that's very common—that kind of mustard yellow, and also that kind of queasy chartreuse-y green. Yeah, uh, that was what re- the testing showed. Really, sliced through the murk. I'm a purist. I love a red fire truck, but I—I I think that is actually true. You can't see it at night. You can't see it in the fog, the snow, the rain. So it's dangerous.
0: But the other thing that I learned in doing that story, and it wasn't just about the department there it was that most of the innovation in firefighting was not coming from city departments it was coming from volunteer departments because they had to make do with what they
8: had great deal of the time that was absolutely true now i mean uh, also there the, the, i mean um, the
0: department here actually perfected the robotic firefighter right the, the, they were the first guys yeah. to be able to send a robot firefighter in yeah you know on, on a track with a hose
8: well there you go uh, phoenix actually does have a proud tradition with its fire department we don't always in, in, enjoy the most progressive reputation in some ways but the with the fire department we've always been on the cutting I mean, we, Say we. I mean, going back to the beginning, we had and we had a very uh, innovative police or uh, excuse me, fire chief for many years, Alan Brunacini, who developed the incident command system. A lot of things uh, about firefighting that were considered very innovative. In and the by the way,
0: that's years, a so. course I take now: oh, in- incident, command, incident command. Because command, there it, you, go. you got to know who's who's mm-hmm. calling the shots; otherwise, nothing gets done, and precious time is lost.
8: At the museum, we have a call center display from Phoenix. It's when we only have a few pieces from Phoenix, but one of them is this call center display with a big map of Phoenix and Lake indicating the fire stations, that was, it seems very primitive now, but it was absolutely state of the art. People came from all over the world to check out that technology and take it back to their hometowns. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And you have a saying that the history of humanity... Is the history of firefighting? You,
8: I think you can make that argument. I mean, kind of step one for humans is the you know, here's fire, here's all this great stuff you can do with it. You can really argue it's what we have instead of claws and fangs, you know, and fur. Uh, and then step two is uh oh, you know, I mean, there is that great uh, that great proverb that's common to many cultures, which is that fire is a good servant but a bad master. And so the history of civilization, you can say, is that fire is, is is keeping fire a servant, not letting it become a master.
0: How often is the museum is the museum open every day?
8: It, the museum is open theoretically every day except Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's Day. That's it's, pretty good. Yeah, Monday through Saturday from nine to five, noon to. Uh, uh, four on Sundays. Every once in a while, we have to close because of a because of a uh, marathon in our area or something yeah. like that. Closing the street. So it's a good just idea. Just call, call ahead.
0: First. You can come in. Admission's what? Ten bucks.
8: Admission's ten bucks for an adult and less for you know seniors, kids, things like How that. How about firefighters? Uh, firefighters? No, we actually don't. We get we kind kind of get a striking you know a, a, a stricken look occasionally from a firefighter <laughs> for me. because we don't. Yeah, but well, you know we'll figure something out. for you.
1: Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now.
0: My next guest, well she's from Texas, but she's really been in Arizona since 1976, so she's local in the biggest way. She also happens to be the chief curator at a place most of you have never been, the Heard Museum. Diana Purdue, how are you?
6: I'm just great, thank you, Peter.
0: I mean, now the Heard Museum has been around for a while.
6: It has been. It was founded in 1929. We're celebrating our 90th anniversary year.
0: And you know what? In Arizona, that means you were here from the, from almost day. Well, not you, but the museum. I mean, to think that you started a museum in 1929 in Arizona is saying a
6: lot. It is, and I'm glad you clarified that that it wasn't. No, me. it's not you. <laughs>
0: Because you would be an artifact with me in the museum at that point.
6: This is true. This is true. Yeah, the museum was founded by May and Dwight Heard. They moved here in, around 1895, and they became enamored with the Southwest and with the arts and the culture of the Southwest. They began collecting. They had decor- and I'm
0: And I'm assuming at, at that point in time, it was really Navajo.
6: Oh, well, no, uh, not exclusively. Navajo, Hopi, Apache, uh, also New Mexico, Pueblos, so. um, But we're were... talking
0: Indian and Mexican art.
6: Uh, We're talking American Indian art. That's
0: that's what I'm saying, American Indian. Yes, absolutely. And they collected it. In those days, not easy to do, I mean, when you think about it, and then also not easy to display it.
6: Well, actually, it is kind of interesting. There are a lot of uh, shops, little pop up shops in downtown Phoenix, and sometimes Native peoples would sell their works in uh, downtown Phoenix. So that was how they started. And then as it got too big, it got too big. Their collection outgrew their home, and they decided to plan a museum. And then they really began to dedicate their time to collecting more broadly in the United States. And
0: of course, it's one thing just to display the item, you also have to explain it.
6: Well, we work very closely with uh, individual artists, with community members from the different cultures, and we try to present everything in a first-person voice as much as possible.
0: What lessons, since you've been there, have have you learned about the culture that just suddenly started to reveal themselves as you learn more about about the art and the culture?
6: You know, I think the thing that amazes me most is how artwork can change so dramatically and how an artist can take a a small detail and really change an art form significantly and then the the entire art form changes. Give me an example. Well, Katsina carvings. Uh, In the 1970s and earlier, uh, Katsina carvings were decorated with feathers and uh, of course feathers were um now
0: carvings out of what
6: out of cottonwood root okay for the hopi people and uh the feathers were also used in ceremony, but feathers of particular birds were a protected species. And as this became a problem for shop owners who were selling selling Katsina carvings, the carvers began to carve every little detail in the wood, so every fine little feather point and every little feather shaft.
0: Without the feathers.
6: Without the feathers, and the art form changed dramatically just with that. One uh, one little change.
0: And when they... I'm, I'm a big process fan. How long would it take them to do one piece?
6: Oh, my gosh. Um, some of them are, you know, take months to, to do. Because I mean, they're in so Mexico,
0: did- I discovered the alabrijes. Uh-huh. And intricately painted uh, animal figures out of one piece of wood that may not be longer than your arm, but would take someone six to seven months to do just one with, with almost microscopic dots of paint.
6: Oh, those are amazing yeah. art forms, yes. And this is similar in terms of time investment, as, as are a lot of the, uh, the different artworks that are done. And sometimes people don't, don't realize that. For example, if uh, a potter will collect the clay, they'll clean the clay, then they have to moisten the clay, they have to shape it. Then they paint it or decorate it, and they fire it out of doors, and it's a tremendous uh, process. Listen,
0: I've always said that if you could understand and appreciate the process, that's the only time you value the product.
6: I, I agree with you, and if you've ever tried to make any of these things, I think you appreciated it even more.
0: And there's a reason why my parents were called to school that let them know why I was failing in art, okay? that's <laughs> <laughs> I failed art.
6: I don't believe it.
0: <laughs> it's, it's true. I failed a few things, but art was certainly one of them, although I appreciated it. Uh-huh. I appreciate
6: it. Well, b- we uh, we certainly have visitors who appreciate the art that we show.
0: And speaking of the art, are the artists who are doing the art now able to come into the museum and tell their stories?
6: Oh, yes, absolutely. We have special programs that go with our exhibits. We'll have um, lectures. We'll have artist panels. Uh, sometimes and often we'll have artist videos in the in the gallery so that people can have that personal experience if the artist is not present.
0: You know what? Once somebody can explain it to me, then I can appreciate it even more.
6: I bet you can. Make it to.
0: I failed Art Diana. Okay, we we good on that?
6: Before I introduce
0: my next guest, I want to give you an idea of how funny this is. That looking at his bio, everywhere he has cooked, I have been at the time he was there and he didn't know it. He's been in Wisconsin. I was there in Kohler. He was there in Asheville, North Carolina, at the Biltmore Estate. I was there. Uh, Of course, he was in the Boca Raton Resort in Florida. I was there. So And and uh, and the Arizona Biltmore rights, which, of course, was named after Frank Lloyd Wright, not far from here. I was there, too. So what that means is neither of us can hold a job. Or
10: great minds think
0: alike. <laughs> and that voice <laughs> is Rick Boyer, the executive chef here at the Phoenician. <laughs> were you surprised that I knew everyone I was there, everyone you were there?
10: Absolutely. Yeah. I've, uh, I've had the pleasure of uh, traveling and working in some uh, fabulous places and... Uh, Happy to hear that you were able to uh, hopefully enjoy our cuisine as well. But the cool thing is this is the third time you're in Scottsdale now. That's correct. What brings you back? Well, of course, the Phoenician, uh, my family and the weather, uh, a combination of things. But uh, my career started here at the Phoenician back in uh, the early uh, 90s, 1993 through 19— Mary Elaine. That's correct.
0: Which was, by the way, named after the wife of the former owner, Charles Keating, who ended up going to prison— (laughs) small <laughs> minor sadly. detail sadly. sadly the big savings and loan de- debacle right um and when this hotel was ended up running was being run by the feds correct the federal government came in it was can you imagine the, the federal government general managing a hotel it was like oh it's going to become the post office <laughs> but you know what they survived
10: they survived and uh what was unique about this property back then and now is uh we've been able to maintain its reputation uh through quality and service and uh, providing those memorable experiences for our guests. So,
0: You know, the whole idea is can you keep the bean counters out so you can actually control your menu?
10: Yeah. At the end of the day, uh, I think we, we focus on what we can control, and uh, that's, that's quality of product, that's steps of service, that's uh, making making a resort welcoming for our guests and making them feel at home, and that's but, really know, what it's about.
0: But going back to your first day's here compared to now, now you can source anything.
10: Absolutely true. I well, mean, when you were
0: first here, it was like it was a struggle to get well, what you needed.
10: Well, back then, I'll be honest with you, as you know, uh, this hotel has always been a food and beverage destination, not just a resort to relax and, and uh, you know, get, get off your feet and, and just kind of unwind. Um, but it's also a, a dining destination. And I think what's unique now is that we're, we're able to bring that back. And I will tell you, back in the early 90s at this property – and you're, you're correct. Today you, you can fly anything into your door the next day. And although maybe we didn't have that luxury back in the early 90s, we were still securing some of the best product that you could find in the country.
0: Right. So back then the salmon was coming in by covered wagon,
10: was it? <laughs> <laughs> well, we were, we were uh, either trucking it in uh, from the coast or, uh, in those cases, still flying it in back then. I mean, we, we had Dorado on the menu uh, from Europe. We had, you had guys racing menu. out to the airport to Ab- get it fast. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that's what separated this property, uh, back in the early nineties. But I would tell you, um, it's such a joy to be, be here as the executive chef and be able to, uh, fulfill and, and keep that reputation kind of moving forward.
0: We're talking to Rick Boyer, the executive chef here at the Phoenician. Let's go back to those days when you were here the first time was there a thing on the menu then? Was there an item on the menu then that is still on the
10: menu today? Oh, gosh. I would say no. I mean, I, we, we just went through a renovation where we um, were able to reconcept our restaurants. And, uh, Mary, and I, La-
0: Mary Lane's is gone.
10: Sadly, yes. Yeah. But uh, I would say that that um, the spirit of Mary Lane's uh, continues throughout the resort. And what I mean by that is that focus on, on quality and consistency and in, in ex- exceptional guest experience that Marriott Lane's created in this resort lives on in a food and beverage Well, something operation.
0: else, if you, if you go back and do the history, some of the great chefs in this country cut their teeth
10: in Mary Elaine's. Absolutely. This resort has uh, garnered three James Beard award-winning chefs. And our which,
0: which, considering you're talking at the end of the day of, of a hotel restaurant, is right. saying a lot.
10: It's saying a lot. It's saying a lot. And... As we reconcepted the uh, the restaurants uh, for the next decade or so, uh, you know the focus was to certainly have an independent feel and make sure that uh, we start with quality products, we have diverse experiences for our guests, uh, whether it be the the business traveler, the family, or the local guest. So, uh, All right, so
0: I have to ask one question, which I always ask the chefs, so you, you, there's no exception here. Is there one thing you put on the menu... That you thought, man, this is going to be the star item on the menu, and it completely tanked. And conversely, is there one thing you put on the menu? Like, Do I have to put this on the menu? Who's going to want this? And everybody wants it.
10: Yeah, for sure. I think um, the 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 menu development process is always interesting because you have to just underst- you first have to understand your demographic. A um, couple things that that we struggle for sure in the desert here: uh, shellfish, outside of grilled shrimp or. Uh, Lobster, any sort of shellfish struggle to sell uh, dry-aged By the way, the shellfish struggle themselves. (laughs) Right, that's right.
6: You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide.
3: Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world.
0: Survivor's back and so is On
2: Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast,
8: wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News
4: business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast